Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Drew Bailey. He is Associate Professor in the School of Education at the University of California, Irvine. His research interests include mathematical development, individual differences, and longitudinal methods. And today we're going to talk about educational psychology. So, Dr. Bailey, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Ricardo. Yeah, nice to be here. Okay, so, I mean, when it comes to educational achievement, for example, I've already talked on the show with some behavioral geneticists, for example, who are some of the people that focus a lot on individual differences, and I know you're also interested in that in your work. So, I mean, do you, to what extent do you consider the genetic basis of individual differences when it comes to educational achievement? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So, uh, like, uh, to what extent do I consider, uh, you know, the behavior genetics research on educational attainment in my in my research? Um, I guess I would say so, uh, sometimes I consider it and sometimes I don't. So, uh, I'll start with uh, just what what I think is a bad way or not a very useful way for me and my work to to think about behavior genetics. Uh, uh, research because maybe your audience will be familiar with some of these ideas. So I think that there's an overrated interpretation of findings from behavior genetics, which is that um, common environmental factors, so these are like environmental factors that make siblings more similar to each other, um, these, these factors seem to explain less variance in adult outcomes like cognitive skills or years of completed education. Uh, than a combination of genetic factors and uh, non-shared environmental factors, environmental factors that make siblings more different from each other. And uh, <clears throat> these findings, uh, I think, are, are pretty robust and can, can be uh, observed from, from uh, a variety of different uh, methodologies. Um, and uh, uh, sometimes the the amount of uh, shared environmental variance is pretty small, like uh, for adult IQ scores, maybe like 0.1 or 0.2, or maybe 0.3 for edu years of education, years of it, uh, uh, educational attainment. Uh, and so based on this information, some people have made the argument that therefore like parents or the education system specifically or, or public, uh, public policy more generally just don't matter in some sense. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is like a really politically charged topic and lots of ink has been poured on both sides uh, with many social scientists questioning like some of the assumptions of these methods. Uh, my view is that uh, the findings from behavior genetics are interesting and I do think about them sometimes, but the relevance of this work for public policy is pretty indirect, okay? So it's not so simple that, oh, 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, these numbers are small, therefore we should just give up. Um, uh, and the, the reason is, first of all, public policy researchers just don't care about variance explained for the most part, and they shouldn't. Um, so if we're interested, let's say we're interested in the effect of a, a, of a new cigarette tax, okay? We don't care how much variance the tax explains in smoking behavior. This is not like a question that would come up during our discussion about whether this new cigarette tax is a good idea. So we're interested in a more specific set of questions. So if we implemented an extra 
one dollar or uh, one euro tax on cigarettes, um, what would be the effect on changes in the rate of smoking or mortality or something like that, right? So uh, uh, <clears throat> how do we get from, so let's go back to the behavior genetics literature. How do we get from variants explained by common environmental factors to a different number that is a that represents maybe like a more useful bound on how much we might expect um, some hypothetical social policy to change um, uh, test scores or, or years of education. So, uh, in a twin model, like where you have you're comparing identical twins you're, and and fraternal twins, and you're using the extent to which identical twins are more similar than fraternal twins to make inferences about um, the extent of genetic influence and the extent to which they're 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 both quite similar to make um, it, uh, inferences about the magnitude of common environmental influences in a twin model. Um, the effect of of like a one standard deviation change in common environmental stuff on um, the outcome of interest is actually just it's the square root of the common environmental variance okay mm -hmm. uh right so it's the square root of r squared right it's so r c squared it's c so so okay so remember those low pessimistic values of common environmental variance like 0.1 for iq or you know uh 0.3 for years of education well the square root of 0.1, that's about 0.3. The square root of 0.3, that's like between 0.5 and 0.6. So that means that even if we assume that a social policy has to influence um, educational outcomes via common environmental factors, so not challenging the assumptions of the methods at all, I'm not gonna talk about that right now. Um, even as, assuming that the model's right, a one standard deviation improvement in those in those factors, whatever they are, and you know, common environmental factors, could generate maybe a third of a standard deviation improvement on IQ scores. That's like five IQ points, like half a standard deviation increase in years of schooling. I mean, those are really big effects, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, so uh, in, in summary, like. You know, it's not that this research is uninteresting or, or I, I don't think it's it's as fundamentally flawed as some people on the Internet seem to think. I think it, I think it's I think it's interesting and important. Um, but, you know, basically, uh, I agree I th that the economist James Heckman wrote in his critique of the book, uh, The Bell Curve, that basically as long as common environmental variance isn't really zero, then we should expect to see real influences of measurable environmental inputs on adult outcomes. And it turns out in some cases we do. And so uh, just by the way, for folks interested in this, I wrote um, about these ideas some in a book chapter with Jonathan Y on why intelligent, what intelligence researchers should and shouldn't expect public policy researchers to know or, or care about intelligence research. Right. But I mean, in terms of the environmental educational interventions, could you give us some examples of those and perhaps tell us if they are really long lasting or not? Because, for example, when looking into specifically the literature on IQ and some environmental interventions on education that people have been trying throughout the decades, I mean, people, uh, IQ researchers usually say that 
if e even if they raise IQ, it's for a, it's only short term. So I, I mean, of course, I'm focusing on IQ here, and there could be other sorts of educational interventions and interventions to change other psychological traits that probably are important for uh, in in an in an educational context, like I don't know conscientiousness or something like that. But what do you have to tell us about it? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So, what interventions seem to have um, uh, positive effects on adult outcomes? Um, so, uh, 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 what one good example is um, compulsory schooling. Okay. So, there are several studies from labor economics that attempt to estimate the causal effect of um, an additional year of schooling on things like um, earnings. So I think the classic meta-analysis is by uh, David Card, and they, and they find positive uh, effects on average. So um, to be clear, these studies, they're not just comparing people who, you know, stay in school for a year longer to a group of people in the same cohort who, who stay uh, in school for, for a shorter amount of time, because obviously, right, those people are different on average for other reasons that could plausibly influence later earnings. Um, but they might compare, like, for example, the earnings of cohorts before and immediately after some new law requiring people to stay in school for an extra year um, uh, uh, before they can drop out goes into effect. Uh, and these estimates are a lot more trustworthy. And so education seems to influence earnings and also uh, IQ scores in the, in the long run. There's a nice meta-analysis on uh, the IQ effects by Stuart Ritchie and Elliot Tucker drop. Um, so uh, uh, as, as to like other educational interventions that have long run uh, impacts, um, uh, it's interesting, it, educational uh, uh, policy researchers don't care nearly as much about long run impacts on IQ as IQ researchers, unsurprisingly, I guess, right? Um, uh, so, so the the examples that that we talk about are often examples of uh, uh, interventions that seem to influence, like things like uh, years of schooling, or uh, criminal uh, 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 behavior, or um, uh, earnings. Right? These are things that uh, economists are much more interested in. Some. Um, we can talk more about IQ in a second, but I think these these are important. So. Um, another intervention that seems to reliably affect long-run outcomes uh, is uh, uh, early childhood education programs, particularly for children from poor families who would not otherwise have received the early intervention. So there are several pretty good causal designs now at this point that, that um, estimate long-term effects of, uh, uh, of these kinds of programs, particularly on years of schooling. Uh, the evidence on long-term effects on IQ from those programs is much more mixed. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, nutritional programs that target poor children. So in the U.S., we used to call the, our big program food stamps. Now we call it um, supplemental nutrition assistance program, SNAP. Uh, this, is, this also seems to yield long-run benefits that manifest on, the, on labor market uh, outcomes, educational attainment. You know, and I think these are more important, really, than adult IQ, right? Especially from a 
cost-benefit calculus, right? If you know, should we be investing in these things? There are others having a more effective teacher, going to a more effective school, broadly defined. Um, and interestingly, I think maybe this could explain why why you might be surprised based on your conversations with intelligence researchers is that in some of these case in, in in some of these cases impacts on achievement or aptitude test scores uh, may decrease or fade all the way to zero and the program yields impacts on years of schooling earnings or crime anyway mm -hmm. right so I mean I, I don't know if this is right or not but I guess that perhaps one of the reasons why intelligence researchers focus so much on uh, the impact of educational interventions on IQ in the long run would be that perhaps IQ correlates really high with, uh, for example, being able to attain higher levels of education, like higher education, college, university, and so on. I mean, I, I don't know if that's uh, true or not. I mean, I don't know to what, to what extent IQ is really so important in that way, but what do you think? Well, you know, I, so IQ does correlate with labor market outcomes and with educational attainment, uh, you know, uh, and uh, there are good reasons to think that part of these associations are causal. Uh, I mean, to the extent to the extent IQ is measuring um, real, you know, skills that are useful, right, in 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 the, in the labor market. Uh, uh, you know, that that's totally true. And that's a good reason to be interested in studying um, individual differences in, mm -hmm. in cognitive skills. Um, it, in my opinion, it's not a good reason to study them at, at, and at, to, to not be interested, right, in in the uh, the the long run, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, kinds of variables that we think that IQ is serving as a proxy for, right? In these in these kinds of studies, right? If we if we can actually get, you know, reasonably good measures of things like earnings and um, uh, crime and uh, attainment, then you know, really, I, I if you made me choose between looking at looking at those and looking at IQ. Uh, maybe 10 years ago, I would have cared more about IQ, but now I, I care a lot more about the uh, real world, you know, outcomes, right, that that uh, probably are, are more beneficial to individuals and, and society. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Uh, when it comes to the fade out of educational interventions you mentioned, I mean, do you think there would be any way of trying to solve that issue? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. So, so I, I don't want to uh, uh, leave you know listeners with the impression that um, uh, you know that that any uh, attempt right at, at making kids' lives better or whatever is just going to magically translate into big impacts on on these these real world outcomes that we care so much about 10, 15, 20 years later. So um, despite these positive long-run impacts I mentioned above, uh, many of which are, uh, are uh, uh, long enough to, to justify increasing education-related spending substantially, um, it's also very common that impacts on targeted constructs get smaller and sometimes become statistically indistinguishable from zero after the end of treatment. So there are like dozens of possible reasons that contribute to this. Uh, so one is that um, 
like although like in education, I think people do like a reasonably good job nowadays of targeting things that are important for kids to learn mm -hmm. and at changing them effectively in the short term. Um, uh, I think it, an un, something that's been underappreciated, under underrated by educational interventionists and, and, and consumers of, of research about education is that um, kids are like exposed to a lot of of educational input after the end of an effective educational intervention. So, like, let's go. Let's let's talk about an example. So. Uh, I have a kid who's four, so like four and five-year-old kids, if you get tell them what's two plus three or something like that, they will often solve the problem this way. Uh, they won't just remember the answer, five. Uh, they, they won't count in their head, three, four, five. Uh, uh, they won't even count on their fingers by saying three, four, five. They'll just, they'll just say, okay, three plus two, uh, one, two, three, four, five. Right. It's pretty robust. The little kids will do this, you know, quite, quite reliably. And OK, so obviously, eventually we want these kids to just know the answer. We want them to know that's five. It's going to help them a lot when they're doing, you know, systems of equation problems in, in algebra. We don't want them, you know, counting out all these problems on their fingers. Um, uh, and and in the in the in the shorter term, before they memorize the answers, we want them to be able to understand it's actually more efficient if you start with three and then count the, the, the smaller addend. Okay. That's much more efficient. So, um, like, uh, uh, if, if, and if you, okay, if you never learn how to do this three, four, five, you, you might not go on to more complex addition strategies. You, um, you might struggle to learn subtraction because learning five minus two is three is three is easier presumably if you know that three plus two equals five. So presumably I could give a five-year-old lots of extra practice at counting from the larger add-in so they do this reliably. Okay. So this is an important skill. It's something we can change. Okay. So if I did this to, you know, 10 five-year-olds, would this fundamentally change these children's educational trajectories? And I think the answer is probably not. And the reason is actually, in some ways, it's good news. It's that in in most like high income countries, um, nearly all kids are going to learn to to count for, from the higher addend in elementary school. Mm -hmm. So that means that the five year olds go are going to learn how to do this anyway. Okay. So unless in the meantime, these ten five year five year old kids who I teach to count from the higher addend. Um, uh, are getting pushed really hard by me or someone else to learn the next skill in the progression and the next skill and the next skill. Um, or I'm teaching them to think about math in like this fundamentally different way than they did before and also a different way than their first grade teacher and their second grade teacher is going to teach them to learn about it. Um, uh, it's hard to see how this intervention is likely to translate into extra years of schooling or, or higher earnings or or lower crime. Um, so so one thing that I think is really important for uh, uh, people to consider when they're considering like you know very specific targeted educational interventions is what else kids are getting at the same time, but also what they're going to get in the future if they don't you know even if they don't get the intervention I'm 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 promising to deliver. Right. 
And since we're talking about interventions, let me ask you a broader question. Do you think that our education systems, and of course you probably focus mostly on the US education system, do you think that they should be reformed and how? Yeah, good question. Well, we have different education systems, uh, right? Education systems can vary a lot, you know, just from even even locally. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't really know. Uh, I, I, um, I've been thinking more about, you know, how to improve the current system, you know, by cha changing it at the margins. Um, although some potential changes at the margins, like adding on additional years of compulsory schooling at the beginning of kindergarten, or maybe a drastic overhaul of school funding systems, those, those, those changes would be quite major. Um, I think all sorts of potential changes should be on the table. Um, but there's, there, there's a difficult problem, which is that the most dramatic overhauls will have the biggest potential to have large effects, large positive effects, large negative effects, right? Effects in either direction. Um, but these big, these big dramatic changes are also the changes for which we don't have a lot of good randomized controlled trials or natural experiments because we don't, you know, we don't have that many um, uh, really, really big changes to the education system that happen over and over um, that, that we can go back uh, and study. So I think I don't think that's a reason we shouldn't discuss them, that they shouldn't be on the table completely. Um, but but I you know uh, the education system is a complex system with a lot of redundancies. Uh, but you know um, and, and a lot of like kind of uh, uh, hidden um, uh, knowledge that's difficult for 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 any specific person to to know all of. Um, if you're not embedded within the system, especially, so you know, I just think we, we should we should we should talk about these things, but we should be careful when we we think about going forward with really dramatic change. Mm -hmm. So I ask you about reformation, but do you think that there are any clear problems that at least we should think about? Yeah, definitely. So one one challenge is like a political challenge. Um, so um, uh, educational investments, particularly early educational investments, um, these, these things don't pay off in terms of like increased attainment or reduced crime or something like that for a long time after you implement them. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if we give, you know, high quality, uh, uh, you know, free, uh, preschool services, uh, you know, higher quality, we, we invest $2,000 more per child or something like that, let's say, um, for the, 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 the cohort who's currently four years old, right? They're not going to be, they're not going to be at the point where we're going to know that they're going to have higher educational attainment for at least 12, 13, 14 years, right? Till, mm -hmm. till they're around 18. So, um, so that means that the, the group, the political group that makes the reform, they don't get credit for it, right? I mean, it's not like 14 years later, people notice, hey, that, that program seemed to work. Oh, man, you know, that, that, that guy who we voted out 12 years ago, we should really not have done that or something like that. It doesn't, there aren't really a lot of examples like that that I can think of. Um, so there are several examples in the literature of educational policies, actually, that seem to have helped kids on net, like even in the long term, but were scrapped because they were politically unpopular in the short term. 
So like one example is like desegregating schools um, via busing within the U.S. So um, uh, school districts that were completely uh, segregated or schools that were completely segregated. And then uh, court orders would say, uh, listen, you can't do this. You got to you got to um, integrate the schools. OK, um, so you, you have to take some kids uh, from the, the all white uh, uh, dis or from, particularly from the all-black district and, and uh, uh, part, of, part of the district and bring them to the currently all-white part of the district. So this policy is controversial actually among people of all sorts of political stripes within the U.S. nowadays, um, but some economists, uh, including uh, Rucker Johnson, um, have worked to suggest that actually when these black children grow up, it seems to help their labor market prospects and it doesn't really hurt white, white children, right? So like, this is a good example of a policy. It's like, how do we get back there? We, we probably don't, you know, I mean, it's, or, or if we do, it's gonna be slow, difficult process. And, and the politicians who really put their cap, political capital behind that are putting themselves, they're, 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 you know, themselves on the line because it probably there's going to be pushback. So what can we do to get around this problem? Uh, one thing I'm very interested in is, um, uh, you know, a really low cost uh, uh, solution is um, investing in, in forecasting. So like, uh, I don't know, my colleagues and I have a paper where we survey like a bunch of education researchers on what do you think is going to happen to socioeconomic gaps on like broad education, uh, sorry, broad achievement tests um, uh, during the pandemic when a lot of uh, children were having to learn remotely from, mm -hmm. from home, right? right? Which was especially new and weird, especially for little kids, right? I mean, you know, it's just weird to see kindergartners, you know, sitting around and watching the screen yeah. and not sitting on the carpet, you know? Um, so, <clears throat> anyway, we asked a bunch of researchers to make forecasts, and based on my read of the current evidence, um, our forecasts or re our researchers' forecasts got the direction right. They they, they predicted that that uh, uh, poor kids would be uh, 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 gaps between le uh, uh, socioeconomically advantaged and disadvantaged kids uh, uh, test scores would grow during the pandemic. So they got the direction right, as far as I can tell, based on the, the best evidence so far. Um, and the magnitude of the, of the estimate, they were pretty close, it seems, you know, maybe um, uh, somewhere between maybe one uh, and two tenths of a standard deviation, it seems to be what, what I'm seeing so far. So uh, a combination of like quantitative models that can make good forecasts about the effectiveness of various changes to the education system combined with like aggregate aggregated forecasts from from education researchers who can show a knack over time of making good forecasts some people are much better at this than others right at attending to the most relevant information some people kind of just throw out a number right whatever feels right that doesn't seem to be always a very good strategy. Um, I could see this adding a lot of value, right? Because I, I think we're leaving a lot of a lot of knowledge um, on the table right now in in education policy, and that and that we could uh, we we could do better. And maybe you know this kind of exercise could do something. It, it's not going to fully solve the, the the political problem, but maybe it could do something to. Um, 
uh, pass a little bit more of the blame on from the politicians responsible for implementing these kinds of policies to um, education researchers who really should be held um, uh, accountable for the kinds of positions that they're advocating. Right, I understand. So uh, I would like now to talk a little bit about sex differences in education. So, But before I get into specific sex differences, I would like to ask you a general question. So to what extent do you think sex differences in different, for example, cognitive abilities really have an impact on education and educational attainment. Do you think that's really that important or not? Yeah, um, well, as maybe you've gathered from debates around this stuff, it, it's it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on because um, uh, uh, for, it's for a few reasons. So for, you know, for one, one, one reason is that um, the, uh, uh, you know, people are have very strong opinions about mm -hmm. these things. You know, but but another is is a scientific reason is that it's just it, you you have these different theories um, that make a lot of overlapping predictions. So like the the group who thinks gender differences are socially constructed, they can point to dozens of ways in which gender differences are indeed socially constructed. Right? It's not like there's a a baseball gene or something like that, right? The, the, um, uh, yeah, you got to learn the rules of baseball to play baseball and professional baseball players are disproportionately male. Um, but it's like part of that is definitely social constructionism. Um, uh, and then on the other hand, the, the, the sex differences drive gender gaps in occupational choices crowd. Um, they argue that these like stereotypes and gender roles are downstream from, you know, something like biological sex differences or something like that. But, uh, you know, something, one reason that I, I'm doing less work in this area nowadays is that I've been frustrated some by, you know, the uh, ability of this group to, to produce really good mechanistic explanations of these things that are strong enough to satisfy like a reasonable skeptic. So like there's a version of this argument that there are like biological sex differences that, and then, and then there's this complex causal chain that happens and then you get sex differences in occupational choices. There's a version of that argument that lots of social constructionists probably agree with, wherein you have gender differences and psychological constructs and occupational choices that are real but they're downstream causally from a few sex differences that reliably develop in the absence of specific social input, like body size coupled with like gender segregated play. So like, I think this is a version of what some people call like a biosocial model of gender development, which often like, in arguments gets contrasted with like straw man versions of like a pure social constructionist or pure biological, you know, version of the argument or whatever. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so um, uh, I, I just think a lot of part of the reason that folks are still having de uh, decades old debates uh, in this area is that questions need to be posed much more specifically to have the potential for results to change people's minds. Right. So the, the, the question I think we want to I think we want to answer is what kinds of 
Um, I don't know. I don't even know if both sides agree on the questions we want to ask. Well, one, one interesting question is what kinds of, of sex differences would you get, right, uh, reliably in the absence of any sort of gender-specific socialization mm -hmm. uh, practices, right? And it's just right. really, it's, it's really hard to know. We don't have a lot of good natural experiments like that because people pay a lot of attention to sex and gender, right? So, um, another, you know, uh, maybe a much more applied question that I'm, you know, so so um, if one side can keep presenting evidence of social influences on gender differences in behavior as evidence that they're right and the other side's wrong, and the other side can keep presenting evidence that humans are in some ways a lot like other mammals, um, and as evidence for their theory and, and evidence they're right and the other side is wrong, then people are just going to keep yelling past each other forever. We need to argue about more specific, more specific claims, like what would happen to the distribution of um, men in um, electrical engineering if the following three policies were adopted or, or, or something like that. I think, I, you know, and arguing about those things would also have the advantage of also potentially being able to change or not change things, depending on what your goal is. Right. But I mean, with all of that in mind, of course, I'm not trying here to get down to solving the debate between the more biologically slash evolutionarily minded people and the more social constructionistic minded people, let's say. But, but I mean, for example, there's these phenomenon that people have been calling the gender equality paradox, where it seems that by looking across different countries, some of them that score lower and other higher on gender equality, that we get this paradox where it seems that uh, male, uh, males and females uh, I mean, differ more in their occupational and their educational choices in countries where we have higher gender equality than in the ones where we have lower gender equality. And the paradox there is because, I mean, from uh, socially, uh, socially, uh, socially constructed view, let's say, we would expect the opposite. I mean, as gender equality goes up, difference, those differences would shrink so uh, i mean and for I'm, I'm talking specifically about that because i've read one of your studies where uh, it seems that higher levels of gender equality show larger national sex differences in in this case mathematics and anxiety and relatively lower parental mathematics valuation for girls so I mean, could you comment on this and on and specifically on that study and what do you think generally about this paradox? Definitely, sure, yes. Yeah. So that was a paper with um, Heisbert, Stute, uh, Alex Moore, and my PhD advisor, Dave Geary, who I think you interviewed. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, uh, you summarized the findings quite well. Um, uh, uh, in the... In, in, uh, among countries that participated in PISA, which is this large international study of academic achievement and related constructs in high schoolers, uh, within countries with higher levels of economic development and who scored higher on this gender equality index, 
there were also larger sex differences on a measure of math anxiety that was given uh, uh, to, you know, to, to students in this study. So um, like you said, I think the reason that people find this finding interesting is that it's inconsistent with this very simple story where like the only thing that determines um, how an individual feels about math, or at least the only thing that determines gender differences in these feelings is some broad construct gender equality or something like that. And to, you know, to be fair uh, to us, I think that um, there were some instances in the literature where, where people had, uh, had made that, uh, that kind of assertion or that, you know, that, that it does follow from, um, you know, some, some theory of um, gender socialization that you should see uh, more gender equal outcomes on psychological variables in more gender uh, equal countries. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, of course, in reality, like, um, it's not like we prove, right, that there's a causal effect of gender equality in the opposite direction. Right, right, it's, right. right. So, it, you know, it's just it, it's just that social dynamics are, are really are really complicated. So um, the correlation is pretty large in our in our um, a sample across countries about 0.6 um, but but it's just a correlation right this, it's it's a stylized fact that needs to be explained so uh, it turns out uh, like you alluded to that the pattern of larger sex differences in more gender equal countries um, seems to hold for several constructs and and some occupation within some occupations um, and, and has been called the gender equality paradox. Um, and, and so one, one explanation that some people have proposed for this, the person I associate with this explanation is David Schmidt, um, is, is that um, in gender equal societies, men and women are free to express themselves more fully, their preferences, their, you know, their deep preferences, and they're less constrained by um, uh, social forces and that's how you end up with larger gender differences and more gender equal societies. But the dynamics are pretty hard to nail down, I think. So mm -hmm. um, you can um, you can make various gender equality paradoxes go away if you could, depending on what you control for in your model. So if you control for gender stereotypes or by controlling for um, achievement and socioeconomic status. Um, and of course, whether you want to control for these things depends uh, um, on your mental model or, or like what's really true about what of which of these variables are confounders that influence both gender equality and um, uh, and, and math anxiety or, or, or occupational choices versus what's a mediator, right? They're caused by, um, you know, gender equality um, uh, and subsequently influence um uh, occupational choices. And of course, those inferences cannot be drawn from the data alone, right? They require other kinds of, 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 um, of knowledge. So it, it's really hard to know exactly what's going on. Um, uh, one potential contributor to the pattern um, is that is boys and girls relative patterns of strengths. So some evidence from so so across all the PISA countries, it's much more uh, of a regularity that girls outperform boys on the verbal test, 
yeah. then that boys outperform girls on the math test. Um, and uh, there's some evidence from Herb Marsh's group that, that, that suggests that at least for older children, um, higher performance in one domain can actually decrease your self-perceived competence in the other domain. It's kind of cool, right? I mean, and I don't know, sad, I don't know, whatever, but it's, it's interesting, right? That becoming better, you know, at verbal uh, uh, skills or being placed in a, a classroom where you're seen as one of the uh, stronger verbal students that because you, one of the ways that you form your identity about whether you're good at math or, or reading or something like that is is via your your self-perceived skill at the other at the other domain relative to your to your peers. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, if, if girls consistently outperform boys on, on reading achievement across countries, one one effect of that is that you can have um, girls actually with with lower self self-perceived uh, uh, competence on, on, on math skills um, uh, uh, than boys, uh, and that that, can, that effect can actually weirdly be bigger in places where, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, the, the gender difference on uh, reading skills um, is, is higher. Honestly, I don't know exactly what's going on. I'm not really doing much work in this area uh, uh, right now. I suspect that the most compelling account of what's going on will have to be able to explain between country differences in terms of within country processes. So you, it's not gonna just be these country-wide scatterplots. We're gonna have to figure out what's going on as things change within countries. Um, there is some compelling evidence that within countries, math gender gaps favoring boys are larger in high socioeconomic status areas and actually often even reversed in low socioeconomic status areas. There's a paper on that uh, within the U.S. Uh, written by, I think, Sean Reardon. Um, and, uh, you know, again, this is just another stylized fact, but at least it's a within country stylized fact. And, and maybe that's a good place to start as you're trying to figure this out. But I, in short, I think it's a lot more complicated than you, you, you change gender equality and then gender differences get, get bigger mechanistically. I don't, I don't, I, I think there's a lot more going on uh, than that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, but putting aside for a second the potential explanation for these differences and the gender equality paradox, there are certain differences, sex differences in cognitive ability that people bring to the table often that might have some influence on perhaps educational choices, educational attainment, and so on. So, for example, people mention, uh, as you said, reading ability for girls, uh, verbal ability more generally, uh, and for boys, for example, spatial ability, the ability to, for example, rotate 3D objects in their minds, would, which supposedly would be influential when choosing areas like engineering and stuff like that. And uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure if there are any significant sex differences in different mathematical domains or not. But I mean, uh, are these differences r replicable? Are they solid? And if so, do they really have a considerable impact 
in sex differences in educational attainment and choices? Yeah, good question. Uh, so some of these, uh, okay, so within uh, a particular population, uh, the, uh, many of these differences are highly robust. Okay, so you you um, you know if you find if you find that um, on on the PISA assessment, girls outperform boys on a reading test uh, at age 15 um, in 2015. You're gonna you're probably gonna find the same thing in 2018, right? That's that you have thousands and thousands of of, of participants, right? So. Um, uh, as the, the as to the question of maybe whether they are like universal truths or something right about um, like low level kind of um, processes that like differ between uh, uh, boys and girls, uh, I'm less sure about that. Um, uh, I, you know, um, uh, I, I I don't I don't know exactly why uh, girls are outperforming uh, boys on on these reading assessments. So. Uh, uh, consistently across cultures, but there's a fair amount of variation um, across countries in the magnitudes of of these gaps, mm -hmm. suggesting that they are at least somewhat sensitive to you know so social uh, inputs. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm sure some people would say, well, yeah, the, they're they're um, the 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 extent to which culture moderates um, uh, these gaps reflects the extent to which some more fundamental biological thing is expressed or whatever I don't know it's 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 hard for it's hard for me to tell uh, mental rotation uh, within uh, as far as I can tell within like uh, uh, Western uh, societies that affect a, um, a 3d mental rotation is is pretty big um, and it replicates uh, uh, pretty well. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't fully understand uh, all the mechanisms where it comes from. We do have one paper uh, with uh, uh, David Putz, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, was the, uh, who maybe you also interviewed, was the first yes. author. find that circulating testosterone in 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 the brain in in uh in one's body while they're taking the test or or fluctuations in testosterone across a short period of time do not seem to be at all related in men or women to um uh mental rotation uh performance so to the extent it's influenced by <coughs> excuse me by um uh, uh, you know, uh, biological stuff, it would probably be stuff that happens uh, much earlier. Right. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I really am, am not completely sure. I if I had to bet, I would bet a lot more on, um, uh, on uh, occupational differences being strongly influenced by um, sex differences in interests. I think... Um, the, the weight of the evidence suggests that gender differences in occupational sorting are driven by lots of different things, but that occupational interests are a big part of it. Now, then we have to have the conversation, okay, where do gender differences in occupational interests come from? And I think they're just really determined by lots and lots of different complicated stuff. The, right, the, so the 
as you probably know that the like the the gender roles people will say well they're influenced by what kinds of people are currently in the job mm -hmm. right if, if if tech is 90% male then then uh, women will have lower interest in tech because they'll think this isn't for me and the the nature of the jobs will change so that they'll be more oriented towards what men like to do or what they find interesting or whatever I'm, there's probably something to that but then as you know the other side's going to say yeah but where did those differences come from in the first place and it's yeah. all you know it's all um so i don't know i guess over the years i i i, I tend to think that um there's really something to to all of these uh, different positions. Um, and so like the most interesting basic science questions are things like, you know, they involve these hypothetical thought experiments where like, imagine that we treated men and women exactly the same that we just are really hard to get at. Um, and then the most interesting applied questions um, are probably best answered with like experimentation. And then we don't have to have this culture wars argument all the time where, you know, men are really like this and women are really like that, or, you know, or everyone's exactly the same or, you know, something like that. So, yeah, it's probably a, not the, the answer exactly you were looking for. It's definitely not like some of your other guests might, might answer, but I, I, that's how I currently feel about it. <laughs> No, I mean, that's perfectly fine. And this is an ongoing debate. And I mean, as you mentioned, at a certain point, it very easily turns into a sort of chicken and egg problem. Because I mean, we have men and women fulfilling these sort of roles, let's say we have these gender roles in society. And so I mean, men and women are influenced by those roles. But then where do those roles come from? And then I mean, and it goes on and on and on. And it turns into a chicken and egg problem. So uh, but I, I mean, ju just one last question. I mentioned mathematical ability. I mean, when it comes to the sex differences, I focused mostly on verbal ability and uh, spatial abilities but uh, are there any significant sex differences in mathematical ability yeah that's a good question uh there are are, are several uh meta-analyses now on this i think um uh and yeah so it depends i think is the answer um uh and and uh it, but in interesting ways so um uh uh, you, it's, as far as I can tell, you see bigger differences on narrower tasks than on like uh, broader tasks, sometimes in, in predictable ways. Something uh, that it, I, I, when I was a graduate student, I was working on a big longitudinal study on children's math development in Dave Geary's lab. And, you know, we found moderate sex differences quite reliably on um, um, uh, kind of a speeded arithmetic tasks, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, one one could imagine that, in, in fact, a paper that uh, of mine that I, I don't think it gets cited a ton or anything like that from when I was a grad student was is uh, kind of interesting here is, uh, in my opinion, I'm biased, uh, that um, uh, 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 boys were faster than girls. I think we had data from um, first grade to fifth grade or something like that. I, I, I should know this off the top of my head, but I don't remember. So boys were faster than girls 
every year coming up with the answer to a speed and arithmetic problem. But boys were far less accurate than girls in the earliest year. I don't remember if it was kindergarten or first grade. Presumably because, and there's other evidence from, from other groups on this, that um, uh, on average, boys are uh, less uncomfortable, I guess, with the idea of shouting out an answer that might be wrong, right? Their threshold for speaking up seems to be lower, right? And it probably hurts them <clears throat> when they're quite young, right? But if you have that preference, right, for, or, or you know, for, and, and wherever it comes from, I'm not saying that threshold is biologically primary, who knows, right? But if you have that, that sex difference, um, uh, that it, it can have downstream implications for arithmetic. So, so we find that, so girls are a lot more uh, accurate than boys in the, in the first year of the study, but then it switches, so boys are still faster, and then eventually they become more accurate when they're forced to retrieve the problem really quickly. And so I think that's a good example, again, I'm biased, of, of a case in which you, get, you end up downstream with sex differences on speeded arithmetic speed and accuracy, right? But one possible explanation for that is that you start with a, with, with a, a more narrow sex difference, which is in like preference for being able to shout out the answer even, even when it's wrong, right? And, uh, and, and that accumulates over time such that um, uh, several years later you get sex differences in both. You know, uh, so uh, I think if I, I guess if I were really going to dedicate the rest of my career to just trying to pick apart where these differences come from, that's kind of the method I would take is like, um, how what's the smallest number of initial differences that you need to end up with the pattern of complex differences that you get um, uh, uh, later on? Yeah, that, that's really very interesting. So uh, just before we go, where can people find your work on the internet? Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, uh, my website, I have a boring old academic website with, with links to all my uh, papers. That, that, that's a good place to go. And I have a very boring uh, academic uh, Twitter account. Uh, 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 also that, that you can look at, but you know, you, I, again, you, you might find neither, uh, uh, very interesting. <laughs> well, anyway, I will be leaving the links to that in the description box of the interview and Dr. Bailey, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks Ricardo. I really appreciate it. Hi guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. I will leave links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, 
Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windega, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Espinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreff, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roff, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafini, Akion Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardes France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Ruggieschi, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.